Open Access is a publishing model that has been gathering momentum across the world for more than 15 years. Each year, during the last week of October, the academic publishing and research sector comes together to celebrate it during International Open Access Week. Over the past few years, the open access movement has grown to encompass other aspects of the research journey. From datasets to peer review, and open research has grown up as an umbrella term of experimentation with opening up in all of these areas. So what is the impact of opening research? This is Rachel Havard with the Oxford Comment. The theme of this year's International Open Access Week is It Matters How We Open Knowledge, Building Structural Equity. Open research means faster, more equitable access to cutting edge findings, driving disciplines forward and introducing transparency into the research process. As the world's largest university press publisher of open access content, Oxford University Press believes a more open world should work for everyone. So, in this month's episode, I spoke to three researchers and one of our own publishers to understand the different impacts and experiences of open research and where the future might take us. Our first guest is Dr. Tara Spires-Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Brain Communications. So, I'm here with Tara Spires-Jones. Could you please give us a brief overview of your role in academia and your involvement in open access publishing? Sure. Hi. Nice to meet you, Rachel. Nice to see you on the podcast. So I'm Tara Spires-Jones. I'm a professor of neurodegeneration at the University of Edinburgh. So I run a a research lab, but I'm also the editor-in-chief of Brain Communications, which is an open access journal that is the sister journal to Brain, and our publisher is Oxford University Press. Could you talk us through your own experience, open access publishing and outcomes you've seen? Yeah, absolutely. I think open access and open data are very important movements in the field. So I'm a neuroscientist and we have what some people have called a replication crisis, which is that some of the high profile papers published in the field aren't able to be replicated by other groups and people are worried. And in my particular field, which is the study of Alzheimer's disease, this has contributed to, um, I think at least, a failure in translation from fundamental research to clinical trials that work. So we've had a lot of clinical trials that have failed that have been based on really solid preclinical work, but there are all these drivers in the field and and some, some of them to publish Uh, quickly and to get things out there really fast that are only really positive results is sort of um, had a poor impact on the field. And one of the things that I think open access does and open data does is it helps push us to a little bit of a higher standard in terms especially of the data. If we're sharing our underlying research data, anyone can look at it and reanalyze it, which is good for the field because you get more out of it. But it's also good for a little bit of internal motivation that, oh, my colleagues are going to really look into these data. So I want to be sure that they're really, really good before I send them off for publication. And I guess open access and especially the the preprint movement as well have helped us cut the time that it takes to build on ideas because some people can't pay for the papers and then the way that science works, at least in most fields, is that we read what other people have done, we talk to them about their experiments, and we get new ideas and build on them. And there's a big lag from submission of a paper to it being finally accepted, and some people can't even see it after it's accepted. (laughs) So preprints and open access just help have um, quicker access to that data and quicker advancement of the field through new ideas. Great, thanks. How would you reflect on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on open research? 
we um, we did see some COVID related papers coming through our open access journal, and I think people were really glad to get them out there quickly. We try to be author friendly and get our papers out as quickly as we can. And I think people were also glad to have them open access because it was such an important time in the field. So in our journal, being a translational neuroscience journal, they were all related to the cognitive effects of COVID, for example. So, you know, with long COVID, people can have problems for months and months um, and they can have problems that aren't just about your lungs, but are also about your ability to think and sort of brain fog, some people call it. So I think that was an important part of open access was was having those COVID papers that were really timely come out and be shared with everyone around the world. As editor-in-chief of Brain Communications, the COVID-19 pandemic was quite an experience, and I, it's hard to disentangle how much of it was the pandemic and how much of it was this it was our first year as a journal. <laughs> but we had a very hard time finding people who had time to review papers, and I think a lot of that, speaking from personal experiences, so many, many of us were overwhelmed with all of a sudden being school teachers for our children, as well as shutting down departments and labs, as well as people who have our reviewer base who had clinical duties, of course, were overwhelmed. So we found it very difficult to find reviewers. We did see a little bit of a boost in papers coming in. I think during the first lockdown, people all of a sudden couldn't go into the labs. And so people who didn't have all these extra responsibilities may have been writing up a couple of papers. So we got a, a few papers that I think were the tidy up of, oh, well, we can't do anything else. Let's analyze some data. So there was a little bit of a silver lining there, but it was it was tough for, um, I think, all of us as running labs and as publishers and as scientists trying to publish, getting through the time of the pandemic, just like everything was difficult. Right, okay. Do you anticipate long-term changes to research practices as a result of our experiences during the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, in terms of how I think COVID will affect our field and open access, I think that's a good question. I think that a lot more is going to be happening online. We've all learned how we can do this quite easily. So in terms of being a scientist, I think our meetings will stay at least in part online and part hybrid. And it also was a good chance to explore how we advertise the journals. So we had a meeting, Brain uh, and Brain Communications hosted the first Brain Conference, the charity that we that we sort of work for, that our all of our proceeds go to, the Guarantors of Brain, ran an online conference called the Brain Conference for the first time during COVID. And the idea was it was widening access to these fantastic neurologists and neuroscientists giving talks and sharing data. And we also advertised our journals. So we've used in some of some sense, we've used the COVID online boom to spread our reach a little bit and advertise that we are an open access journal at Brain Communications and that we welcome papers from all over the world. Great. That's really interesting to hear how COVID's affecting everything, even in areas that you wouldn't think. Finally, what are the most important things to focus on for the future of open access and open research in your research discipline? Thanks. That's a great question. I think it's going to be very important that we think about open access and open research and open data uh, for several reasons. One is I think we need to change our research culture to incentivize solid, rigorous studies that are going to, at least in our case, lead from preclinical work into effective therapeutics for people. And one way of incentivizing that is by requiring all of us to publish open access and all of us to share our data. And that way it's harder to, uh, to sort of cut corners in a way. It helps the transparency of the field. And I think it's also gonna be important for training our early career researchers as they come through as PhD students and postdoctoral researchers in the importance of open data, open access and rigorous experimental design and how we can share not just our 
papers and our beautiful graphs and images at the end, but our code and our raw data files and our images so that the field can make the most out of it. And that will be uh, the most beneficial in terms of getting the most out of the money that's put in from government and charities, but also hopefully moving knowledge forward at a faster pace. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us about this. Thank you for the invitation. We next spoke with Professor Ugo Panizza, Editor-in-Chief of Oxford Open Economics. Could you give us a brief overview of your current role in academia and your role for Oxford Open Economics, please? So um, I'm, a, I'm a professor of economics at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. Um, I'm also the, the director of, um, of a center that focuses on research on monetary and banking studies and as a mission of uh, kind of create a dialogue between different uh, stakeholders in the financial sector, in academia and in, in the policy world. And I guess my third role is uh, as a vice president of the Center for Economic Policy Research, which is one of the two large networks of economists uh, globally. So there is one in the US, which is the NBER, and the European version, which is a CEPR, which is London based. So that's my, my main roles. And I do research mostly on international finance, sovereign debt and uh, issues related to banking. Great. Could you talk a bit more about what attracted you to work on an innovative journal like Oxford Open Economics? Yes. Yeah, so um, last year, uh, together with a co-author, we, we, we put together a book about titled uh, uh, publishing uh, in economics, in which we uh, collected a series of papers about all the various issues that uh, that affect publishing in economics. And, and people tend to be unhappy about two things. Uh, one thing is that the publishing process is incredibly slow. And the other thing that there is a perception uh, that the process is uh, unfair. And so when I, when I was uh, approached by Oxford University Press uh, with, uh, with the idea of creating this new journal, uh, discussing um, with, the, with, the, with the people at the UP, uh, we, we reached the agreement that the journal would be innovative, not only because it would be open access, and this is clearly uh, an important component, but also because we would try to address this issue in economics addressing the first issue by guaranteeing authors a uh, rapid turnaround and addressing the second problem by um, basing the journal on the principle of sound science and the idea that uh, we wouldn't only make judgment uh, on the objective quality of the paper rather than try to make judgment oh this is a good fit not a good fit because very often people uh, feel that the unfairness really comes from some uh, subjective judgment uh, of the editor or the referee. So we're trying to make the, the journal uh, as objective as possible and hopefully to, to try to address this uh, issue of fairness in the profession. Great, thank you. Um, could you talk us through your own experience in open access publishing and the outcomes that you've seen? I don't have much experience as a producer of open access research. Uh, I have more of an experience uh, as a user and then, um, you know, I'm starting building some experience now as an editor-in-chief of uh, Oxford Open Economics. So as a user, it's 
clearly when when research is open access life of the user is much easier you know if i need to to get access to a paper and i'm not in my university network or even if i'm a university network and that specific paper uh, you know it's not subscribed by my library it's always complicated when things are open access uh, that's fantastic and makes our life uh, much easier uh, as I said, I haven't produced much uh, open access research, uh, but uh, friends who have uh, produced more than me are telling me that there are uh, clear uh, advantages in terms of impacts, in the sense that open access papers get downloaded more, get cited more, uh, you know, and these are papers published on normal journals that publish both open access and non-open access uh, uh, papers. And their impression is that what is published uh, open access uh, has more impact than what is uh, not published open access. So there seems to be a clear advantage for authors to go the open access way. What sort of impact does opening research have in a field like economics in your view? So on the one hand, so economics is uh, it's sort of peculiar in its uh, publishing uh, in way we get published in economics. So economics tends to have uh, very long publishing lags in the sense that it takes forever from the moment a paper is submitted to a journal to the moment it's published. And for this reason, uh, you know, economists have well developed a very well working system of working papers. So if I really want to read an, an article, I, I will find it uh, somewhere in a working paper series, uh, which in a sense make uh, open access uh, less crucial. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, if I want to read the version of record of that paper, the, the official, then you know, I, I find the same constraint that I, I was mentioning before. If you know, if I don't have access, uh, if my library doesn't have access to a given journal, I'm, I'm unable to get that. But there is a little bit this uh, idea that uh, you know most papers have been uh, available in a working paper version before. On the other hand, economics also tend to be uh, more hierarchical as a discipline than other social sciences, and uh, and and so all these kind of um, you know repositories of working papers and all these things uh, tend to. Um, reinforce these hierarchical systems. So if you're part of one of these large network of economies, you tend to uh, be better able to reach a wide audience with your preprints. And so again, maybe uh, with published access, uh, with, with, with open access publishing, and possibly with a system that can address uh, these long delays, and that's exactly what we're trying to do at Oxford Open Economics, uh, with a system that try to address these long delays in the publishing process, uh, maybe can uh, sort of democratize, in a sense, uh, the process of uh, disseminating uh, research outcomes. What do you think the academic community should do to achieve greater openness in the future? So again, I, I'm going to um, talk from my own perspective uh, as an economist and maybe uh, expand a little bit on, on what I said before, that e economics tends to be fairly hierarchical. So, and, uh, and, you know, and of course, you know, whenever you have a hierarchical structure, you know that there are also certain groups which are advantaged within this hierarchical structure. So, 
white middle-aged men like me tend to have a, an advantage <laughs> of other groups. So that's, I mean, the, the, the first step in, in all this openness reform in general is trying to make, uh, you know, research more open to all sorts of type, to all type of people, not only uh, those who, who look like me. Uh, so that's uh, clearly uh, important. And I think that this might become, on the one hand, there are many initiatives that try to make this uh, easier, uh, but there are also certain things uh, that make it more difficult. For instance, economic, again, economics has become more empirical with time. And so uh, you need more resources in, in order to get access to data, to clean your data, to in order to conduct research. And so while before the typical economist was like sitting in an office with, you know, a pen and paper trying to develop theoretical model, now you need all this infrastructure to publish research. So we're moving a little bit more towards the lab system like you have in the hard sciences. But then the lab system is costly, right? You need resources, you need funds. And this again might generate disparities again because then my privileged people who have access to these resources, these financial resources, vis-a-vis -pe people who don't have. So you might even, uh, in a sense, enlarge the gaps between people who are sitting in uh, universities with large budgets, vis-a-vis -pe people who are sitting in small institutions, maybe in developing countries who don't have this, this type of budget. So I see this, you know, democratic, expanding access to data, maybe, you know, open data and uh, as sort of the next frontier in this direction. Do you have anything else to add that you think might be interesting for open access in economics? Maybe, yeah, what I said before is we, we should try to, to exactly improve the publishing uh, process in economics. And again, open access publishing is one step, but there are the issues of trying to make it, uh, in a sense, faster, fairer. There's also this perception that there are sort of, that the process is not very fair. So that's... Uh, that's what we're trying to do with uh, Oxford Open Economics. Thank you, Ugo, for joining us and talking to us about open access. Um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much, Rachel. It was a pleasure for me too. The last researcher we spoke with was Professor Marcus Monafo, Editor-in-Chief of Nicotine and Tobacco Research. Hi, Marcus. Thank you for joining us. Could you give us a brief overview of your role in academia and your involvement in open access publishing? Sure. So um, my name is Marcus Manafo. I'm a professor of biological psychology um, at the University of Bristol and also part of the UK's Medical Research Council uh, Integrative Epidemiology Unit. And I'm also chair of the steering group of the UK Reproducibility Network. And, and something that we might talk about is the role of open access and in particular open research in ensuring the quality of the research that we produce. And I'm also editor-in-chief of Nicotine and Tobacco Research, which is an OUP journal. Thank you. Can you talk us through your own experience open access publishing and the outcomes you've seen? Well, um, we now routinely publish our work open access. We have done for several years in terms of um, the, the primary research that we conduct um, within our group. And that's because we are funded by organisations like the Medical Research Council in the UK and the Wellcome Trust, who have policies that mandate uh, open access publishing. And some that takes different forms. It can be gold open access publishing where the budget allows, or it can be green open access publishing uh, in other cases. But uh, the broad principle is the same, that what we want to do is make our work as widely available as possible 
And of course, there's evidence that that benefits researchers themselves. Work that is open access, for example, is more highly cited. So I think when we're talking about open access specifically or open research more generally, there are really two main drivers. One is the, the moral argument that work that is funded through charitable donations or the public purse should be made available to those who ultimately have funded it. But there's also the more pragmatic argument that actually by making our work more available and more visible, it can be more widely scrutinized and that can serve as a quality control process. It can be more readily used, which increases the number of citations and so on. Did you see an impact on open research and open access publishing as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic? I mean, one thing that was very apparent was that the number of preprints that we saw increased uh, dramatically. And preprints are obviously a form of open access publishing, albeit a um, version of the manuscript that hasn't yet been through peer review. And there are a growing number of preprint platforms that support various types of research in our own areas. We have, for example, BioArchive and, uh, and MedArchive. And an increasing number of journals are quite comfortable with work being preprinted because, again, it serves to um, assign priority to the authors, but also allow more scrutiny of the work beyond the two or three formal peer reviewers that a journal might invite. Um, and uh, that was certainly something that increased dramatically during the pandemic. And I think it's interesting to reflect on what that told us about the, the strengths and weaknesses of different um, uh, forms of publishing, and in particular preprints. Preprints are something that I support personally and that our journal Nicotine Tobacco Research supports. And in fact, we are looking at a, um, a process whereby people can automatically submit their preprint from a preprint server to a journal like Nicotine and Tobacco Research. That's an integration that, that um, OUP and some other publishers have supported. But what we saw during the pandemic was that it was great that research could be communicated so rapidly. And in the context of a pandemic, you can see why that would matter. But the flip side was that there was a lot of research that was out there and being disseminated by a media that was very hungry for information about what the pandemic meant, how we should respond to it and so on, that hadn't been peer reviewed. And um, although in many cases, peer review doesn't fundamentally change the uh, conclusions of a paper, it is there for a reason. It, it can serve to spot um, errors, problems, problems of interpretation. It's not a perfect process by any means, and the limitations of peer review have been well described, but at least it's a process and some kind of filter on the first pass that tends to be uh, what you see in a preprinted manuscript. So I think what we saw during the pandemic was a rapid increase in the use of preprints, and that in turn laid bare some of the strengths, but also some of the weaknesses of that approach. Do you anticipate long-term changes to research practices as a result of our experiences during the COVID-19 pandemic? I think what we've seen, if you take sort of that growth in preprints as a starting point, is that open access publication, in other words, making the final end product of a research process freely available, is an important starting point, but it's not necessarily enough on its own. So open access fits within a, a broader open research um, landscape, if you like, and there are many other parts of the research process that we can share and make available. And of course, many journals are now supporting that and encouraging that by encouraging, for example, sharing of data and code that go alongside manuscripts. And that is something that I think the problems that we saw with preprints that I've just mentioned, we will see more of because 
It's only when you can really scrutinize how the research was done in detail and scrutinize the, the intermediate products that gave rise to the final manuscript, the final paper, that you can really determine the quality of a, of a piece of work. And again, that transparency allows more scrutiny, allows errors to be detected, not malicious errors. There have been some cases of, of really problematic papers, um, but those are, are the exception, I think. In the majority of cases, it's simply that when people are trying to work on complicated questions and, and perhaps working fast in the context of a pandemic, there are going to be honest errors that creep in. And the more of the research process that is openly available, the more that those different intermediate research artefacts can be scrutinized and the, the ultimate robustness of the, um, the outputs of that research process evaluated. So I think one of the things that we've learned during the pandemic is that openness, transparency extends well beyond just the final research output. And I think we're, we're at the point where open access has been something that has been an important theme for the last really 20 years in terms of when funders started talking about the need to make our research outputs more widely available. And we're moving into a phase now where that's part of a bigger conversation about open research more generally. That's really interesting. Thank you. As publishers and journal editors, what do you think we should prioritise for the future of open access publishing? So, so I think that question follows really from, from what I was just saying, which is that, you know, if we accept that open research now is, is quite an established aspect of how we work, there are obviously details to be worked out around the different models of open access publishing and how that's resourced and so on. But as we move to more of a focus on open research more generally, then journals are going to need to be able to support that. So they're going to need to be able to um, provide platforms for sharing data and code or identify suitable platforms that people can use, perhaps provide training, encourage reviewers to scrutinize those um, parts of the research process as well. That will bring challenges enough in terms of finding peer reviewers at the moment, because there are so many journals and so many um, submissions that, uh, that need to be processed. Uh, and then to ask them to also look at the data and the code and so on is going to be a, a, a further challenge. One proposal that's been made is that some journals might want to have specialist code check reviewers or data check reviewers that specifically scrutinize those elements. So as we move into this phase of focusing on open research more generally rather than just open access in particular, I think we're going to have to think about how journals can support that and how they can work in ways that link to funder mandates around things like data sharing to make it easier to track when a funded piece of research is actually delivering the data sharing commitments that is required of it by the funder, for example, and how journals can help with that process. Because all of the different bits of the research system, the researchers themselves, the institutions they work in, the funders that support the work, the publishers that uh, are the outlet for that work, all need to be working you know, in a coordinated way for what we're trying to achieve to be effective. Can you please speak about the work of the UK Reproducibility Network and what their priorities are for the future? So um, the UK Reproducibility Network was set up in March 2019 and we haven't been around for very long and we're still effectively a, 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 an academic collaboration, but we're comprised of three main elements. So we have um, local networks of researchers, self-organising groups of researchers that, that focus on setting up journal clubs and seminar series and open research working groups, grassroots activity, if you like, to um, focus on how we can work in ways that ensure the quality of what we uh, what we produce. So that's really the, the foundation of the network. And we have those at 57 institutions across the UK at the moment. 
We also then have institutions that have joined formally. So those are institutions that are committed to what we're trying to do, which is to work towards improving research quality by creating a senior academic lead role focused on research improvement, who can work at the level of senior management, think about things like promotion and hiring criteria and other incentives. And we have those at 21 UK institutions. And the idea is that ideally each institution would have both of those representatives, the local network lead, who would be the voice of the grassroots community, and the institutional lead who would work at the level of senior management and both would work in partnership, challenging each other, but also advocating for each other at those, those different um, parts of the institution, if you like. And then we also have a stakeholder group who are the funders, the publishers, the learned societies, the other sectoral organisations. For example, in the UK, we have um, the Association of Research Managers and Administrators. We have Research Libraries UK, exactly because research is complex ecosystem with lots of different uh, agents within it, all of which have a, a part to play in delivering high quality research outputs. And the idea behind the structure is that it helps us to coordinate activity within and between those different elements. So we can get all of our local networks working on broadly similar issues or in similar ways with the flexibility for them to work out what is best for them locally. We can do the same at an institutional level. We can partner between funders and journals, for example, and we have some quite exciting pilot schemes running that link uh, funder peer review with journal peer review, for example. And um, we're, we're evaluating whether or not that works and whether it benefits in terms of uh, efficiencies and research quality. So it's that coordination that, that we try to achieve with that structure. And what's really exciting is that not only has the network grown in the UK quite dramatically over just over two and a half years, but we're also seeing similarly structured networks modelled on our terms of reference growing up in a range of other countries. So we have several uh, new or emerging reproducibility networks in other countries that are effectively trying to do the same thing. And one of the things that is a, a big focus for our efforts, which won't come as a surprise given what I've said so far, is open research and just trying to ensure that open research is driven at the grassroots level, that there's training in place, but also that there's infrastructure in place to support deposits, that how open research is conceived is, it reflects the different disciplinary needs when it comes to making intermediate research artifacts available on, on repositories, for example. I think the principles of open research or transparency in research can actually apply very broadly across a range of different disciplines, but exactly what it looks like in each discipline will be slightly different. So we're we're looking at, at how we can come up with a model that is flexible enough to uh, to work across those disciplinary boundaries and also how we can incentivize it. So, you know, at Bristol, for example, we've introduced open research practices into our promotion criteria to create a direct incentive. Several of our UK reproducibility network institutions have done similar and set up open research prizes, again, to, to incentivize those kinds of practices. So that's all on the basis of the fact as I said earlier, that you know, there's the moral reason to make our research outputs available as widely as is appropriate, but also this pragmatic argument that by doing so, we can create efficiencies, enable reuse of those um, research artifacts, we can uh, hopefully drive quality processes by allowing more scrutiny of those uh, different elements of our research workflows. So there are lots of reasons to, uh, to suggest that open research might be a positive thing. That's one of the reasons why, as a network, we are encouraging it and, and driving it. But we also need to evaluate what impact that has. Does it have the intended consequences? Does it have any unintended consequences? So I don't think we should just 
assume that because something seems like a good idea, it'll necessarily work as we want it to. But we can check that, we can evaluate that and refine our approach as we go along. Thank you very much. Thanks for talking to us in such good detail about your experience with open access. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Lastly, we were joined by Adam Leary, a senior publisher in OUP's open access publishing team. Hi Adam, thank you for joining us. Could you give us a quick overview of your role and your experience of working with open access publishing? So I've been working as a publisher at Oxford University Press for several years and kind of the main focus of my role has been working with our journals and our partner societies to support their publications. Um, so as part of that I have advised on open access policy developments and open access strategy for journals and over the last few years I've been involved in flipping two journals from a subscription model to fully open access publishing. Excellent. What are the aims of implementing open research practices? So I would describe open research as kind of an approach to conducting research, which aims to make the outputs of research publicly available and easy to find without obstacles to access and for them to be made available in a form that maximizes their potential reuse by other researchers and by the public. So, I mean, the overriding motivations for making materials available is to support the transparency of research and reproducibility, and also to maximize the potential for building on research and accelerating new scientific discoveries. So, I mean, there's quite a wide range of activities and practices that could come under the heading of open research. So, I mean, at one level, that includes just the open access publishing of traditional research outputs like journal articles and books. But there's also a broader picture which encompasses kind of sharing underlying materials that have contributed to the research project alongside the resulting publication itself. So, I mean, one of the most common outputs that we talk about sharing is research data, but equally researchers could share the code and the software that's been used to process and analyze the data, or they could share the detailed descriptions of the methods and processes used to conduct their research projects. I mean, within that, when we talk about data, the definition of data is quite broad. So this could include any factual material that is used to support the findings of a piece of research. And so there's potential for the kind of practices that are advocated to support openness to expand into research areas that produce resources as evidence that wouldn't necessarily be considered as data. So these kinds of underlying materials have often been shared as part of the publication itself. Um, either through including them in the body of an article or as part of the online supplementary material that's used to support the article. But increasingly, researchers and funding bodies have been seeking to make these kinds of materials online separate to the article in, in open online repositories. So making materials available in an open repository enables the repository to assign a unique identifier to the research object, which can be used to cite the object and that also helps to support you know, the discoverability of the materials that sit alongside the article itself. So we've talked about the aims of implementing more open research. What are some of the outcomes? I mean, one of the, one of the major desired outcomes of open research is to increase the pace with which we can build upon the results of academic research. So there's, there's an enormous investment made in there's an enormous investment in research funding made by, by governments and funding organisations, 
um, because of the economic benefits that this can offer to society. So in the UK, it's estimated that every one pound invested in research delivers seven pounds in economic and social development. And also in a 2020 report by the European Data Portal, they reported that 1.7 billion euros in savings on public administration in the EU uh, in 2020 resulted from the sharing of open data. So I think there you can see the picture where there's enormous investment already, but there's also a massive potential for kind of savings and further economic and scientific progress off the back of more open sharing of research materials. So if underlying materials from a research project are openly available and easy to find in a form that's easy to reuse, that makes it easier for other scientists and researchers working in a similar area or complementary areas uh, to identify those materials and to build upon previous discoveries made by their peers. Um, so this increases the potential value that can be derived from the already significant investment that's made in research. It here have its effect in the economy. Um, what should be the future ambitions for greater openness in research, do you think? And what challenges need to be overcome to achieve this? I mean, I think the main ambition for the future will be wider sharing of more research materials alongside the research article. That's just the, the very simple objective that we have. Um, and then alongside that, we want to ensure that those materials are discoverable and to the best of our abilities made reusable by other people, because that's how you, you really realize the benefits of those materials. So um, to support this, I think we'll see further development in the infrastructure for sharing research materials. So, I mean, there's already a very established infrastructure and range of data repositories where people can share their underlying data. And so within that, that encompasses kind of institutional repositories, disciplinary repositories that will serve a particular subject area or community of researchers, and then also generalist repositories that can pick up and kind of provide a home for a wide range of materials that could come from any range of disciplines. I mean, there are also innovative new services emerging that help authors to make their materials reproducible. So a good example of that is a service called CodeOcean, which enables authors to publish their data and any supporting software code alongside each other in a single executable um, compute capsule. So that compute capsule can then be cited in a research paper or, or in a book. And it means that anybody accessing that link can look at and work with the data and code that underlies the results of the research that's being reported. Um, and another similar example is in the, the Dryad Digital Repository, which has developed a partnership with another repository called Zenodo, whereby authors are able to submit data and kind of the accompanying software code alongside each other to Dryad. So those two things can be linked to from one place, making the accompanying research elements more accessible to make it easier for people to access them and reuse them. I mean, when we talk about challenges, I mean, I think the most significant challenge is going to be supporting researchers in developing the ability to prepare and make their research materials available in a form that enables others to reuse them. So I think there's quite a big picture and a lot of work to do there to develop the necessary skills for people to do that. Um, now, a really good example of one of the initiatives that has been developed to support this is um, a set of principles called the FAIR Guiding Principles, 
which were first described in a 2016 paper published in the journal Scientific Data. So um, FAIR is an acronym that stands for um, making research data findable, accessible, interoperable and reusable. And it describes a set of conditions which maximizes the possibility for authors to make their data available in a way that makes it easy for others to use. Um, but doing this does require a lot of specialist knowledge and it requires a significant commitment of time on the part of researchers among the many pressures on time that they have already with conducting their research. So I think capacity building is going to be a major focus for the future, as well as properly resourcing researchers in order to make them, in order to enable them to make these materials available in a way that kind of facilitates reuse. That all sounds very full. Um, it sounds like there's a lot coming around to open access then. Um, quite exciting. Um, what role do publishers play in achieving a more open future as somebody who works in publishing? I mean, journal and publisher policies um, can be extremely influential when researchers are making decisions about sharing their research materials. So in the 2020 State of Open, Open Data Report, which is produced by Digital Science, um, journal and publisher policies were considered or were reported as one of the most important motivating factors for researchers when they were making decisions about whether to share their data. Um, and they were ranked up alongside um, sharing research materials for the public good. That was kind of the level, you know, the, the level of significance given to publisher policies. So as well as highlighting the influence of publisher policies, I think this also emphasizes that journals will still play a central and pivotal role as the home for the published peer-reviewed version of record of pieces of research because as more research materials are made available in a distributed form, the peer-reviewed research paper that, that draws those materials together and reports them will form a hub for linking out to those kind of diverse, the, that diverse set of materials that sit around it. Um, I think publishers also have a role to play in sharing their experiences and best practices in developing open research practices. So, um, so these kind of practices have developed at a very different pace in different disciplines. So I think typically we have seen greater progress towards open research in some of the biomedical disciplines. Um, now, because publisher portfolios are quite diverse and cross-disciplinary, this places publishers in a situation where they can learn from different research communities as these practices are developed and then they're in a good position to share and disseminate those best practices more widely across the various different disciplines that they support. So a good example of one way that OUP has worked to do this was in the development of our own research data policy, which was released in 2020, where we put in place a set of data publishing requirements that we then worked with our different journals and societies to try to implement appropriate data sharing policies across as many of the journals we publish uh, as possible. Sounds really, really quite progressive. Um, yeah, so thank you for joining us and taking the time to come in and talk about your experience with Open Access. All right, thank you very much. We want to thank our guests, Tara Spires-Jones, Ugo Panitza, Marcus Monafo, and Adam Leary for joining us today. Please check out our show notes on the OUP blog for further reading on Open Access Publishing and follow our blog posts this week as we explore all of the aspects 
of how we can make a more open world work for everyone. New episodes of the Oxford Comment will premiere on the last Tuesday of each month. Be sure to follow OUP Academic on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud and YouTube to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. While you're at it, please do subscribe to the Oxford Comment wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. Lastly, we want to thank the crew of the Oxford Comment for their assistance on today's episode. Episode 66 was produced by Stephen Philippi and Ella Percival. This is Rachel Havard. Thank you for listening.